You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So this week, um, Anna and I, Anna's my wife, uh, we were watching one of my favorite shows from growing up, which is Boy Meets World. Um, and, and if you're in the room and you're thinking, I don't know, uh, what that is, you need to get somebody's Hulu account and start watching it. Because Boy Meets World is the greatest coming-of-age sitcom that has ever existed. And it's about a boy named Corey Matthews and a- as he grows up. And in the particular episode we were watching, a, a really interesting thing happened, which is um, a, a very predictable thing in entertainment, and that's that there were two boys battling for the affections of one girl. Um, and And we know this story well, whether you've seen the episode I'm talking about or not, because it's all over entertainment and literature, this idea of of two people competing for the affections or praise uh, of one person or institution. You've seen it in romantic comedies. If you watch war movies or political movies, you've seen two people maybe fighting for power and authority and influence. And this is something we know well. And it shows up over and over and over again in literature and entertainment because it, it's something that connects with people because we know this all too well. Uh, we know it relationally, but, but moreover, we know it because we experience these things taking place within us. The, the waging of war and the competition for our affections and for our desires. And this morning, we're going to look at 1 Samuel and, and see some of that happening. Uh, and we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 18 in a really interesting turning point in the history of Israel. See, Israel, for generations and generations, had no king, but God was their king. And then they decided that they wanted to be like all the other nations, and they asked God for a king. And they were warned that this would go bad for them, but he gave them the king that they asked for in Saul. And Saul ended up being a selfish king, a a disobedient king. And and eventually, um, God rejected his kingship. And and there was this young shepherd boy named David who God sent his servant Samuel to anoint as the new future king for the people of Israel. And and we get to know David a little bit throughout the book of 1 Samuel, especially leading up to chapter 18, as he is the victorious king warrior who defeats Israel's greatest enemy in this Philistine giant named Goliath. And, and so, so with this victory, David is rising in popularity and in affection in, in the nation of Israel. The people are beginning to fall in love with this new future king in David. And, and so, so we see that happening and then we find ourselves in verse 6 of chapter 18 and it says, that as they were coming home, this is Saul and his court involving David. When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with shouts of joy and with musical instruments. And the women were singing a song to one another as they celebrated. They sang, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him because he said that they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the entire kingdom? 
And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God came upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought that I can pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And so in this particular text, Saul and David are returning through Israel to the king's home through, through all of these cities after David has defeated Goliath and this great victory has been won for the people of Israel. And as they're going through the cities, they're hearing shouts of joy and celebration. Songs are being sung. Instruments are being played. And Saul becomes displeased when he hears a particular song being sung among the women that Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. And this really begins what we'll see over the next few chapters, really even to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, a growing sense of jealousy and anger and bloodthirstiness that Saul will have toward David. See, Saul desires the acclaim and the praise and the power that comes with the throne, and David is receiving it. He desires control of the kingdom and he's realizing that the people's allegiance is turning toward this new young king and new young victorious warrior. And Saul becomes even more frustrated as he sees that in everything that David does, he's having success. And and so there are three key points in this text that we need to point out. First is that the people of Israel love David. That's clearly established all throughout chapter 18. David is the new victorious leader. He's the new sacrificial warrior who has gone before them and conquered the enemy that they couldn't conquer, that they were terrified to go against. But David went before them in battle and came out with the head of the giant in his hand. He was brave and strong when they were fearful and weak and the people love him. The second thing is that Saul sees this and he begins to hate David and is terrified of David's success. Because Saul is beginning to realize that the the days of him being the people's object of primary praise is over. He fears that soon David will even have the entire kingdom. And so Saul begins developing different strategies to kill David. So that he might again be the primary object of praise for the people of Israel. That he might have power over the kingdom. We'll see over the next few chapters Saul do a lot of pretty crazy things to reclaim his status in Israel. The third thing is that David has success in all he does. And and the text says that he went out and came in before the people of Israel. 
And, and this is key because it points to David's success and the reason that the people of Israel love David. They love David not just because he's successful, but because he goes out and comes in before them. And, and this language describes David's sacrificial servant leadership over the people of Israel. He is on the front lines of battle, conquering the enemies on behalf of Israel, and he's leading them safely home, day by day. See, when Israel first wanted a king like all the other nations, they said that they wanted a king who would fight their battles for them. And they got a king who sent them into battle and stayed behind in Saul, but now they have this king in David who's going and fighting their battles for them. And so they're turning in love and praise to David. Last week we looked at the story of David conquering Goliath and Marshall explained that, that as throughout all of the Old Testament, it is foreshadowing what's to come for the people of God in Jesus. And so in the story of David and Goliath, we aren't to identify with the character of David as ourselves, but rather with the people of Israel. And Jesus is the truer and better David who has gone before us into battle to conquer the enemies of Satan's sin and death that we stood no chance against. And he's our victorious king. And so that carries through into, today, into today's text. See, we should still see Israel as a foreshadowing for us as the people of God, the church. And we should see David as foreshadowing our king in Jesus. See, in this text, Israel has a new king and they love him. They love him because he's a sacrificial leader, that he's been victorious over their enemies. But the old king seems to still be around, and that's a problem. Because the old king is a bad king, but he still wants influence over Israel. The old king is a bad king, and he desires desperately to destroy this new king, this new object of the people's praise. And, and for us as Christians, we experience a similar transfer of power or a transfer of allegiance or object of praise from one king to another when we turn in faith to Christ. See, formerly, all people serve a king, but that king is themselves. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul explains that the key problem with the human state is that they have turned and worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. Meaning that they serve themselves rather than serving the God of all things. And so people have rejected the kingship of God. This wasn't just a problem for the Israelites in the days of Samuel and Saul. It is a problem for people of all time since the garden. That we reject God's kingship and authority over our lives and turn rather to ourselves to be our authority. We allow the hungers of our bellies and the desires of our flesh to lead us through the day. As we try to establish for ourselves kingdoms and blessings. And the Bible tells us that it's folly. But last week we heard good news. 
we saw this good news that for the people of Israel who had rejected God's kingship, got a bad king in his place, God has gracefully given them a new king in David who will fight their battles for them, who will conquer Goliath and return to the lines of battle with the giant's head in his hand. And similarly, we have a new king in Jesus. Though we've rejected God's kingship for all of our lives, God has given us gracefully a new king in Jesus who has gone before us into battle, conquering Satan, sin, and death, achieving all of the merits of righteousness that we might need. And he has returned from the grave, not with the head of a giant, but with new life. And so this transfer of power is described in Romans 6 when Paul says this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, our old king that we have served, which is ourselves and our desires, is a king that we will serve to gain only death. Just like Saul sent the people of Israel before him in battle to die fighting his battles, so do our desires send us in the world to obtain what they want only to lead us to despair and to failure. But that is no longer our king for those of us who are in Christ. For those of us who have looked at the victorious king in Christ Jesus, we are free from those things. God has given us a victorious king and now... We have seen him as worthy, worthy of serving, as he has freed us from sin and death through faith. And Paul tells us that the promise that comes with this transfer of power is, is a fruit of sanctification and its end, eternal life. First, we'll look at the word sanctification and just say that that's a really big word that describes the process of the people of God becoming more like him over time. It's the process of Christ slowly but surely establishing himself as the primary person on the throne of our hearts. This is a process that Paul tells us ends in eternal life. The promise for the people of God is that, that in the end we will have life fully for eternity just because we have this new king in Jesus. But if we go back to 1 Samuel, we'll see a situation in which Israel loved their new king, their victorious king in David. They loved him, they praised him in the streets, they followed him into battle, they wrote songs about him. But there was a very real way for the people of Israel in which Saul still had influence. He was still on the throne. He had yet to fully die and be gone from a powerful position and he was seeking to kill this new king that they loved. 
Saul didn't care for David taking the place of affection in the hearts of the people of Israel. And so he was going to do everything he could to get it back. And this, in many ways, is just like what happens in the hearts of Christians. We have seen Christ's victory on our behalf. We've trusted in Him. We've fallen in love with Him. We sing songs of praise to Him and about Him. He's leading us into battle every day when we wake up, and He leads us home safely every day when we arrive. But our old king, ourselves, still has influence. Our old desires still have influence, and those desires tell us that it would be the worst thing for us if we allowed Jesus to have the full throne in our heart. And if you're a Christian in the room, you know this all too well. You've experienced this war raging in your heart between sinful desires and new desires for Christ and the things that he's called us to. You've found that no matter how much you say and sing and pray and read about your new love for Christ, that you find yourself doing things that are directly opposed to him. Your old self just doesn't want to relinquish the throne. Your old self loved immorality and jealousy and selfishness. But your new self hates those things. See, your new self loves your neighbor and loves to do good when nobody is looking and loves to worship the God of the universe rather than the people that he created. Many of you have been struggling for years and years and years with this war being raging in your heart and you've at times thought, maybe I'm not even a Christian. If I were a Christian and if Jesus was really my king, there's no way I would be doing the thing that I just did. There's no way I would have the thought that I just had. I know I experience that on a weekly basis. It's easy to get caught up in this thought process that tells me that nobody who has been a Christian as long as I have and knew their Bible as well as I do could choose sin as often as I do. But in those moments of doubt, I always find myself deeply comforted when I continue reading Paul explaining this transfer of power in the hearts of Christians. Because after he talks about it logistically in chapter 6, he talks about it experientially in chapter 7 of Romans. And this is the apostle of God called to deliver the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, the apostle who's writing the very words of God in Scripture, the apostle who has seen Jesus face to face, And yet he writes something that I feel like I maybe wrote in my prayer journal last week. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I find, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So the Apostle Paul is describing here what every Christian will find themselves experiencing. This experience that that we do love our new king in Jesus. And we desire the things that he wants for us. But we find ourselves doing the things that our old self did. These things that we now hate. Paul loves Christ and he wants to be more like Christ. But Paul says that even though he loves Christ and even though he wants to do the things Christ has called him to, he just can't seem to do it. He keeps sinning, and he hates it. He keeps sinning, and it confuses him. He keeps sinning, and it causes him anguish and grief. He keeps sinning, and it causes him despair, but he just keeps sinning. Who in the room feels a lot like Paul? And if you don't feel like Paul, there are really two options. The first one is that you're lying. And the second is that you're not yet a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, your ultimate desires will be for Christ and for the things of Christ. But your flesh, and and when I say flesh, I mean your old self or the sin that still dwells within you, it will still desire sin. And you will still disobey much more than you wished you would. You'll hate that but your flesh will try to convince you that you love it. See, just like Saul is unwilling to give up to the new king in David, your flesh is not going to want to give up to the new king in Jesus. So what do we do? Are we to just sit in this toil and despair? No. First, we have to understand that sanctification is a process. Every process requires one necessary ingredient, and that's time. So you won't wake up tomorrow and be free of all your old sinful desires. At least I haven't seen that to be the norm for the people of God throughout history. But you might wake up in a couple of years and have less of those desires than you do today. You might wake up in a decade and find that Christ has a greater place on the throne in your heart than he did 10 years before. You might find that in 25 years you have a greater ability to resist the things that your old self loved so dearly, but that you hate so much. See, if we were to look at 1 Samuel, we would see that This is chapter 18, and there's about 15 chapters left. And for all 15 chapters left, Saul will be waging war against David, trying to reclaim authority, reclaim the praise and the desires of the people of Israel's hearts. 
it takes a long time for the old king to die. But it will happen. It will happen when we die or when Christ returns. The second thing we must do is we must give ourselves over fully to our new king. If we go to the first five verses of the the chapter that we're in, chapter 18, we'll see an interaction between David and Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is the son of Saul, and he's the rightful heir to the throne in Israel. He's a grown man, and he's the prince of Israel, and there's this young teenage shepherd boy who God has chosen to be king. But God does this thing in Jonathan's heart where Jonathan knows that well. And Jonathan's soul is knit to the soul of David. And he becomes, begins loving David as himself. And then he does this wild thing where he enters into a covenant friendship with David. And he removes his royal garments and his armor and his sword. And he gives them over to David. Saying that, David, you can have the right to the throne. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus calling his people to this sort of surrender. He tells people that if they want to follow him, that they will need to die to themselves. He tells them that following them may tear them away from their families. He tells them that following him will lead them into ridicule and abuse and scorn and suffering. But he also tells them that if they desire to keep their own life, They will lose it in the end. But if they lose their lives for the sake of their new king, they will gain everything. See, for those of you who are in the room who are Christians, God has knit your soul to the soul of Jesus in a much more powerful way than between Jonathan and David. And you have given up your rights to autonomy and to selfishness and to the throne of your heart by surrendering to Jesus. But many of us think that this was probably a one-time event of emotion in our life where we were at a summer camp or a retreat or, or something happened and we gave ourselves over to Jesus. But the reality for Jonathan was that every day he woke up And in his closet was not his armor or his royal garments or his sword. And he recognized every morning that he had given those things over to the rightful, good, victorious, graceful, sacrificial king in David. And like that, we must wake up every morning and realize that we are not our own. That we have given up the rights to be our own, that we might experience the safety and security and blessing of being part of Jesus' kingdom, which is much better than a kingdom that we could build on our own. See, Jonathan knew that under the leadership of David, he was safe. God's strength was with David, and he knew the outcome. Jonathan knew that he didn't need to be the prince or the king because David was a better choice. And the power of God was with David. Jonathan began understanding himself in light of David. He didn't understand himself as the son of Saul or the prince of Israel, but as the servant of David, the friend of David, the one joined to David in covenant. 
And we must remember to define ourselves according to our new king. He's the one who has the power of God. He's the one who's given us that power in his very spirit. See, we read through Romans 7, and we see Paul struggling with this turmoil in his heart between doing the things that he hates in sin and and desiring the things that he loves in Jesus. But Romans 7 is not the end of the passage. Paul has just finished crying out that he's a wretched sinner whose only hope is in Jesus. But in the first verse of chapter 8, he he says this. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul just said that he keeps sinning all the time, even though he knows it's evil, even though he knows that he's completely wretched on his own merit. But he says that for him and others who have put their trust in Christ, there is no condemnation. And this is something that we see in David's life. See, David grew to know the Lord in a way that he knew that God's relationship with him was the defining factor. If we read the Psalms, we'll see Psalms that David wrote in which he's pleading his own innocence. And it's not because David thought he was without sin. It's because he knew that God loved him and had declared him innocent by faith in him. See, David didn't think he was perfect, but he knew that God loved him perfectly. We can surrender to our new king in Jesus like Jonathan surrendered to David. We can understand the depths of our failures like Paul understood the depths of his failures, but we can still know that we're completely loved, accepted, and forgiven like David knew. Because in all of these things, We know that God will transform us day by day, year by year, into the people he's created us to be. So if you're in the room and you've yet to put your hope in Christ, if you've yet to trust him as king, here's what you must know. There are really two options. You can serve the creature, yourself, or you can serve the creator. Jesus said, Jesus who created and spoke the world into motion said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You can serve yourself and you can build a great kingdom on earth. But that kingdom, just like you will, will eventually crumble and die. Or you can trust a great king who loves you so much that he would go before you and take on the enemies that you cannot handle, your desires, death, God's wrath toward your failures, and who is already preparing a kingdom for you. See, in his kingdom, there are things that you will never find fully in the one that you might build. See, in the kingdom of Jesus, there's life, there's joy, there's peace, there's security, and there's freedom 
to say in his kingdom that we are broken and still say this with complete honesty. I am not condemned. I am loved. I am innocent. I am free. I will not die. So the call for those who are Christians and those who are not is the same. Come and lay down your right to the throne of your heart. Allow King Jesus to take a seat on it and allow God to knit your soul to him in covenant relationship. In this sort of surrender, you will be set free and you will gain something much greater than you've ever desired and that you'll ever be able to gain on your own. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would call our hearts to a deep humility that we would surrender to you fully. I pray that for those of us in the room who have yet to ever trust in you, Lord Jesus, would see you for the first time this morning as the victorious and graceful king who has gone before us into death and came out of the grave alive. And I pray that all of us would remember that and that we would surrender to you, Jesus, and trust in you and your work on our behalf. I pray that as we experience this battle being raging within us between our old desires and our new desires for you, that even as we come to the table, that you would quicken us to the obedience of your son, that you would tie us fastly to his faithfulness, and that we would release power and authority over our lives and trust in a king who is trustworthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.